Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. So I received a few emails and a few questions, and I'm going to address those before we start this podcast. This is the second uh, inter- second part of the interview that I had with Brian Toss. Brian Toss is a pretty famous rigger and a very interesting person to talk to. I've, I really enjoyed talking to him. But anyway, before we get to that, let's let's deal with some questions. On Twitter, from a individual by the name of Imperial Storm Pooper, he apparently listened to the podcast and asked a couple questions. And I asked him to send me an email because it's hard for me to go back in Twitter and find these tweets and respond to them. And, and I can't respond to a question on Twitter. And I hate typing with my thumb and finger on a phone anyway. And, and when I dictate half the time, well, I shouldn't say half the time, quite often... It misinterprets what I say. So if you ever get an email from me or a message from me, assume that I dictated it and the computer or the electronic device didn't interpret it correctly. So read between the lines. I don't like to type. That's why I do audio. Anyway, he was responding to the podcast where I talked about how I go about reefing my my boat when I'm reefing down. And remember, I'm I'm coming from a a sample size of, of one. This is the way I do it, and it's taken me years to figure out the best way to do it. And it is not the way I would do it if I were on a racing crew or if I had plenty of hands on board. I do it this way when I'm single-handed sailing, and that's how I prefaced how I reef my, my boat when I single-hand sail. And when I have a crew on board, sometimes I won't do it quite this way, but sometimes I do. It just depends on the conditions. But he made the comment, let me just read it, he said, and, and, and I pointed out that when I'm reefing my boat, I will just furl up the jib all the way because I don't want that jib flogging about with that steel shackle on there and threatening to put out my eye. I just don't want to deal with that. So I just go furl up the jib all the way, it's easy to do, start my engine and just start motoring ever so slowly into the wind, enough so I can maintain steerage. And this has actually been a problem. Quite often I just try to idle into the wind, and the wind and the waves are too strong. And eventually, even if I have it on auto helm, the boat starts turning one direction, and the auto helm can't correct because it doesn't have enough water across the rudder to to turn me back into the wind. So quite often when I'm doing this, Suddenly, I'll be broad to the wind, the boat will be heeled over, it'll be a pain to try to to reef down the main, and I'll have to run back to the cockpit, uh, give it more throttle, and point back into the wind again, and then re-engage my auto helm. And when you're doing that by yourself, it's a pain. But his point was, instead of furling my foresail, why don't I just instead sail on a close reach? Well... I've tried this, 
and I'll tell you the reason I don't do this. The reason I don't try to sail on a close reach is I want to make my reefing experience as easy as possible. And if I'm sailing on a close reach, the boat is going to be heeled over quite a ways. Even though I'm pointing into the wind, it's heeled over. And what I'm trying to do is to eliminate that heel. And I don't want to be up there fighting it, holding on for dear life, worried about going overboard, because I don't wear a harness when I do this. I'm using two hands and being careful. But I don't like to have the boat heeled over. And also, even if I am sailing close to the wind, my mainsail will not go up if there's any stress at all on the slides. So I don't try doing it. Now, that's the way I do it. On your boat, it may be totally different and may work well for you. But if you're single-handed sailing, I've found my method is easy on my boat. On your boat, it may be totally different. Then he makes the other comment here. Let me go to it. Oh, he also says, I easily maintain steerage. Not necessarily. It depends on the wind conditions and the wave conditions. I may not be able to main, maintain forward motion if I'm tight reached. Depends on how tight I am. And if I'm not tight enough, remember, my boat will not sail into the wind oh, really any closer than like 50 degrees. 45 is really pushing it. And when I look at a uh, GPS of me tacking into the wind, these are pretty wide tacks. So it's not a racing boat. So I have to actually fall off probably a lot more than a racing boat would need to to be able to maintain steerage and forward motion under the jib alone. So uh, it doesn't work on my boat. Maybe it works on your boat. Then the other thing he says, once I release the main sheet, there should be no pressure on the main. Yeah, and, and also the boom is hanging out over the water too. I have a long boom on my boat. So if I'm trying to reef down and tie, uh, tie my reefs in, now I'm having to crawl out across the boat, hanging out over the side, putting myself in danger. Where if I'm going straight into the wind, motoring straight into the wind, the, the boom is going straight back towards the cockpit. And actually my last reef, I have to go back into the cockpit and tie the reef inside the cockpit, the one on, on the far end of the sail. So on my boat, it doesn't make sense. I have a long boom. So that's the reason I do it. So Imperial Storm Pooper, appreciate your question. I wish you'd sent me an email because it was sort of a pain to go back and find your tweets. So I may respond to you on Twitter, but really I want you to write me an email if you have a question because I can keep track of the emails and it's hard for me to, cre <laughs> to keep track of Twitter tweets. Maybe other people know how to do it. I don't, okay? All right, now, Neil, my buddy Neil out of Santa Monica, California, just wrote me an email this morning and he asked me, he said, Franz, uh, when you put your boat up for the year, do you keep it on trickle charge or do you just disconnect the battery entirely? Well, it's taken me, a, <laughs> I think I finally figured this out a couple of years ago. When I had my boat in the water and I left my boat and I had a reliable source of power, you know, in other words, a dock electrical outlet, I would leave my boat on a trickle charge. When it's on the hard, there's been many years when I've come back and my boat's not where I left it. They've picked it up and moved it somewhere else. And, and if I have a, uh, an extension cord hanging over the boat, uh, they may or may not plug it in. They probably won't because the marina I use, you have to have a card to activate the electricity. You're charged for your electricity. So if I left it plugged in, first of all, I don't know how reliable the electricity is. And they have power surges, and it may reset the whole system. So I just don't trust 
the continuous electricity, because it is on a card, you have to activate the electricity. So if there's a surge that comes through, chances are the electricity is deactivated and you've got to take your card down there and reactivate the electricity. It's a little like credit card that they use to activate both the electricity and the water in the marina I'm at right now. And that seems to be what's happening in the marinas I've gone to in the Mediterranean. So no, I don't leave a trickle charge on. I used to try to leave one of my solar panels overboard so it would it would trickle charge with the solar panels. I found that that didn't work. Over the years, I would come back and I would, um, my batteries would be dead. So I found that the trickle charge did not work. I turn off everything on my boat and there's still phantom draws on the battery. And I tried to track down the phantom draws. I don't know where they are coming from. And I wired the boat myself, so I know the electrical system pretty well. And I've, the last couple of years, what I do is just totally disconnect the batteries. Just totally disconnect the batteries. Um, so there's, <laughs> even if there is a phantom, it'll not decharge my batteries over a, over a winter. Now, it's funny because I'll disconnect my batteries. And I've got two battery banks that I disconnect both. And even after I've disconnected the batteries, I'll look at some of the LEDs that are on some of my electronic devices and they'll still be lit up. So there's obviously some capacitors that are storing a charge that take a while to to give up that charge. So even though I've disconnected the batteries, I'll look at an LED on a uh, on one of my things that's plugged into the electrical system and their the LED will still be on. But it does go off eventually. So that sort of answers that question, Neil. I don't think there's a, a right or wrong answer. If you've got an electricity source, a reliable electricity source, I would use a trickle charger, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Keeping your batteries fully charged is better than letting them discharge, um, and batteries are expensive. The other question I had was uh, from from Lou Volk. Lou wrote me an email. He was listening to my uh, series uh, of audio lessons, and I think it was for the ASA 101, or it may have been the ASA 104. I'm not sure. So his question was, in your audio on reefing sails, you mentioned that you don't use a square knot when you reef. I'm curious of what knot you use. So here's how I reef my sails, and I, I don't know why this is not sort of standard operating procedure. I have a lot of small, maybe six-foot long lines, quarter-inch, six-foot-long lines. And on one end of the line, I tie a little eye with a bullet knot. So I have an eye on one side. And so on my sail, there's probably about a half-inch grommet. I pass that that small line through it, the bitter end of the small line through from the side I'm reefing on. So if I'm on the starboard side, I will pass the reefing line through the grommet, the reefing grommet, and around the boom. And and I try to remember when I'm going around the boom to make sure I pass that bitter end back up underneath the next reefing lines because I may need to tighten up the next reefing lines. And if I've got it going over the side, that just provides additional friction. So I try to pass it underneath the reefing lines. So in other words, the reefing line is behind, right next to the boom. And the next uh, slab reefing lines that are run out to the clues are, uh, are running free. And then I'll take that line up, go through the loop that I've created, and just use it as a cinch and pull down with it. Now that gives me leverage. 
and I can do it almost with one hand. I'm, I'm not having to hold on uh, with two hands and try to gather up the sail and tie it tight. So it gives me the, the ability to basically have a two-part pulley through this eye. I cinch down the, the sail to the boom, and I just tie a quick, uh, a quick slip knot through there, half-hitch slip knot. And that works great. Going up there with just a long line and trying to pass it through and then tying a square knot where it basically takes almost three hands to tie a tight square knot. You know how you used to do it. You'd have put your finger on the knot while you did the other part, so you'd almost have to have two people to tie a decent square knot. I don't understand why people use square knots when tying a reefing line when this system is so much easier and so much uh, more convenient. So I haven't used a square knot really ever since I quit racing. I mean, when I was racing, they'd do it, but not really since then. When, ever since I got on my boat, I said, this doesn't make sense. Let's just tie a loop on one end, a small eye on one end, and use it as a cinch to tighten up and gather up the sail and, and tie my reefing points in. So I think that's pretty much the questions I had. Yeah, those three questions, that's about it. Last thing uh, Lou did say, say, wow, thanks for the fast response. Note, I really enjoy your audio lesson. Each one is just about the right time it takes me to drive to work. Well, thanks, Lou. I appreciate the question. If you have any more, drop me an email. All right. With that out of the way, if you are studying for the ASA 101, 103, or 104, I have a series of audio lessons available for you at the website if you like to learn audibly. They are available at the website www.medsailor.com or just medsailor.com that should take you there and that's all I need to say let's get on to the second part of my interview with Brian Toss so how did you end up up in Port Townsend is that where you're from oh no I grew up mostly in Seattle and uh, started when I started tying knots I first was making sort of a living making things like Turks heads and doormats and such keychains, just tying thousands of fancy work knots, selling them at street fairs and then gradually uh, segueing into making boat fenders and then splicing wire and met the great Nick Benton uh, rigger uh, from back east, uh, quite a mentor for me. Um, so gradually veering into boats, and then at the same time eager to get out of the city. Um, I came up here to visit uh, after the first wooden boat festival in 70-something, 1970-something. And um, some shipwrights were then in the back room of the building I'm still in uh, at the time. They were back there, and they said, hi, Brian, nice to see you. And they just shut down, you know, tools down, rolled a joint, and uh, uh, just shot the breeze for a couple, three hours. I said, that was a very friendly reception, but not exactly a, a work ethic going on here. <laughs> and um, so I went over to Anacortes, and uh, Erica Pickett, uh, one of the owners of Flounder Bay Lumber, was running a planer, running a big pile of wood through a planer. And she shouted over, hi, Brian, I'll be with you in about an hour, and kept planing. And I moved to Anacortes because I felt I needed that kind of you know, work ethic support to, you know, temper my life. I lived there for quite a few years, uh, several years, and then moved to Maine another five or six years. And when I came back to Port Townsend, either I had changed or the town, I think that uh, the town had changed and they picked up some of that work ethic 
no more tools down, no more smoking dope ever. Um, you know, people just <laughs> were doing good work and doing it on a on schedule, and and it ends up being a a self reinforcing this feedback loop that if you do excellent work, then it's hard to be a shipwright that shows up in town that does not do work at least that excellent. Why would you hire that person when you get someone for the same rate or less who does great work? So it ended up being better and better people here all the time. Um, now in that back room is a shipwright, Steve Chapin, who builds and rebuilds wooden racing shells. Now, Pocock uh, wooden racing shells are an extremely high calling. I don't know if you've ever seen one up close, but it's it's like a Stradivarius without the sloppiness of a Stradivarius. You know, it's this amazing, long creature, uh, very thin wood, very carefully molded and braced with no erg, no ounce of extra of weight and incredibly strong. And, and just like this ongoing art exhibition, you know, when I walk back there to see what's what the latest project is. So Port Townsend is, has been my home since uh, 1986. Um, sail up upstairs, Steve in the back. Uh, great shipwrights all over town. A great bar builder next door here, Bruce Tipton. Um, it is an amazing community, uh, technically amazing, you know, very proficient people of all sorts, machinists, welders, uh, just you know, designers, uh, really astonishing community in terms of technical uh, infrastructure you know that what's what what lives in the hands and minds of the people here is I think hard to hard to equal anywhere um, but also an amazing community um, uh, culturally and socially we've been called the land of the sailing Amish and there's some truth to that you know the, the whole wooden boat thing but let me give you an example there was a fellow here just died recently named Ted Pike uh, Ted was a worked for the local um, Eden Saw uh, that sell lumber, including to a lot of the shipwrights, of course. He was also quite a community organizer and hosting of, of events. So the kind of person that just reaches out and touches almost everybody. And he had this rapid uh, decline and death. And and at the time, it was just started on the on the way down when this illness emerged. He had his boat hauled. It was a good-sized wooden vessel. And he just got kind of stopped and went to the hospital. And without any prompting, uh, some of the local shipwrights, led by Diana Talley, who's an amazing person as well, great shipwright, finished uh, his boat. I finished the repairs and upgrades that he had, had started. And shortly after they finished the boat, to everyone's surprise, he just died. He just check he just left you know? hmm. and everyone just took a breath and then they called for the travel lift and then there was this spontaneous parade i was out of town uh doing a rig survey for the uh, spirit of dana point schooner down in california um called for the travel lift and then this spontaneous parade i'm told of over 200 people in the marine trades walked the travel lift uh to the water uh as doing the boat with flags you know took it to its slip from hmm. one of their own. That's the kind of town I live in. Wow. It's, yeah. So, you know, it sounds to me like the sort of place I'd like to go because uh, it's people are doing stuff there. You know, it's not an arts community, but it is an arts community because it's, yeah. it's, it's an arts community of, of 
useful items, I guess, is the way I would say, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've often thought about this uh, uh, building and owning. Well, just owning a wooden boat is arguably, it, it gives you at least as much claim to owning a work of art as if you own a Gauguin. It is at least as culturally deep and complex and aesthetically appealing and unlikely as a great painting. The difference being that if you own a Gauguin, you, you never have to worry about being rammed by some drunken Jackson Pollock. Mm -hmm. You never have to worry about repainting that Gauguin or if it matches your couch. Um, you never have to, you know, touch up chafe around the waterline. You know, it's, it's, we have a work of art that we take out in harm's way in some of the least hospitable environments in the world, right? It's amazing art. Um, you're right, though. It is an arts community, but it is an arts community that's very conscious that what they do might affect someone's life or death, right? It's a, as Robert Frost put it, it's a place where the work is play for mortal stakes, which is a very enlightening feeling that you know that what you're doing isn't just going to be pretty, although it better be pretty. Mm -hmm. It it needs to work at least as well as advertised, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah one of my friends uh, who I sailed with, he's, he's much older now and he's, he's got Parkinson's disease, but when he was 20, uh 20, oh, 18, 19, 20 years old, he was invited to get on a boat in Los Angeles, and the boat was Namsang, and I don't know if you remember that boat, but it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful wooden boat, and they sailed it down through the South Pacific, and they raced in the uh, Ho Sydney Hobart race in it, and and then of course it changed hands and changed hands, and uh, and eventually I said, whatever happened to, to Namsang? And he said, uh, well, somebody bought it, bought it, brought it back, uh, took it to San Francisco and was heading up one of the rivers there, I think towards Stockton and, uh, sailed under a bridge and demasted it and it sank right there and you could still see it, but nobody recovered it. And it just, just died there. And again, a beautiful piece of art that just art. died. Yeah. 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 That comes with the territory though. That's, that's the deal you make. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And of course, some of these boats have gone through, you know, horrendous trauma and, and were brought back. And part of that's about the materials that, that you can do modular, not modular, but, you know, segmented replacement of things, uh, even though you had damage to them. Um, just the other day, Schooner Martha uh, was at dock, uh, wooden boat festivals done. This boat uh, left for, I forget how many thousands of miles they just finished sailing. They sailed down the coast out to Hawaii, back to Port Townsend over a course of a year. Did a lot of sailing, racing. Uh, this is a boat, a schooner designed by BB Crown and Shield, yeah. built, in built in 1907. Uh, it looks about a year old. Wow. It's in astonishing condition, and it's being sailed hard and, and just loving it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just back from this huge voyage. Uh, it looks like it hasn't gone anywhere, but in fact it has. And it's sitting tied up at its, back in its usual place, all well with the world. And somebody in a uh, not quite under control, you know, three-story Bayliner-ish boat um, 
backs into it, hits it with a swim step uh, right at the waterline, and just gouges, cracks uh, a flank. Now, if this had been a carbon fiber boat, you'd basically have to replace that side of the boat. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's got this huge uh, modular uh, kind of thing going on. Everything's just all one piece. Uh, It's not good news for Martha, um, but there is insurance, and the guy's good for it. The guy was suitably apologetic and you know ready to make it right um but uh, they're gonna have to haul this boat and then replace this plank which happens to be the longest most difficult twisting plank in the boat this is like a 70 <laughs> some foot on deck you know mm-hmm. scooter. um but the thing is it can be done it there uh, there are people here in town numerous people in town who understand how to get the right wood, how to get it to the right thickness and, and, and height, get the right bevels, which, of course, vary every inch all the way to the transom, mm-hmm. know how to steam it, uh, know how to clamp it in place, fasten it, and make it indistinguishable from the rest of those other planks, how to caulk that, how to paint it. That whole ritual is alive, and, and it's and not in some computer program. It is in the head and hands of people who work here and live here, you know, that's where the knowledge is. It's, it's a really rich environment. <laughs> it sounds uh, like you live in Nirvana. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm painting a lovely picture, aren't I? But, you really are. Yes. Yeah. But um, I mean, uh, it said that, you know, uh, what's the difference between a shipwright and a large pizza. And the difference is that a large pizza can feed a family of four. And, <laughs> and it, it is not, Hugely remunerative work. It's you know it does get to be winter here coming on. I just lit a fire this morning and uh, didn't realize that a piece of metal sitting on the stove. This is the first fire of the year. You know, piece of metal there uh, was not iron. In fact, it was lead and it melted all over the stove. <laughs> oh, really? Today? Yeah, just this morning. So the lead, if I t- start talking oddly, it's because of lead fumes in the shop. Um, so this is it's not an easy existence, and you do get cold, tired, injured, you know, hungry sometimes. Um, but it, if Nirvana involves being cold, tired, hungry, and injured occasionally, uh, and I suspect it does, then yeah, it's a, it's a good place. You better, you better be able to earn your place here, right? Uh, we do get people showing up with this, you know, stars in their eyes. I'm going to be a shipwright or a rigger or sailmaker. And, you know, God bless them. People need to dream and aspire, but they also need to do the work. It's got to be somewhat uh, Puritan, you know, in their work ethic, because uh, you've got to get it out the door. People need their stuff. It's uh, it's tricky. It's it's interesting, tricky, but I wouldn't trade it, you know. Obviously. Yeah. Did, did you ever run across a guy in Newport Beach? A guy by the name of Mike Anderson down there. Oh, I didn't know he was in Newport Beach. Did did uh, I think I knew him in a it was a little harbor. He had his little schooner. Yeah, uh, Serena. Yeah, yeah, I worked on the Serena. Oh, you did? Okay. What do you know about, about Mike? Oh, Mike's a friend of well, I you know I met Mike through um, through a guy that by the name of Doug Schmuck, who was a friend ah. of parties who lives uh, in the same sure. same area, Bay of Islands, down in, yeah, in New Zealand. I know Doug. Yeah, yeah, got a great little ranch out in the country. His, his spouse uh, is a horse rider of incredible skill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, yeah. when I got on my boat, when I was looking at buying my boat, I told Sam. Uh, 
Sam, I want to go for a ride on one of your boats. And so he arranged for Doug to take me out on his when he was living in Newport Beach. And then I met uh, Mike Anderson as well, who's, you know, he, he lives this monastic life basically as a shipwright in, in Newport yeah. Beach. So right. really, you know, and, and that's the closest thing to the art community I can think of in Newport Beach. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, that is a Ferrari dealerships, plural. So, <laughs> so, right. I didn't even know Mike was in Newport Beach. Uh, um, a couple of friends and I <clears throat> uh, occasionally teach a one-week course for Coast Guard inspectors how to inspect the rigging of T-boats, of 50-carat passenger uh, uh, sailing vessels. Um, and a couple times, a couple, three times now, we've taught it in Newport Beach, also in, at the Academy in Florida, just Seattle, here, Port Townsend. Um, so I just little my way, my way of segue. Uh, these are people that what, six or seven years ago now, there was a couple of fatalities of passengers in Hawaii aboard some charter cats. Um, just horrible things. Uh, and they were both boats that had very recently been signed off of, uh, by Coast Guard inspectors as being fine. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that they were, and to some extent, you know, they still are, they were charged with inspecting these vessels without being trained in how to inspect the rigging. But being the Coast Guard, uh, the great majority of people in the Coast Guard are are people who really care about other people and really are trying to do good things. And that includes taking good care of them, you know, physically uh, on these charter vessels. Um, so they were very eager for this this training. So we came up with it. And uh, so we had this odd kind of context, this super rich community in Newport Beach, California, at a local community college, Orange Coast. Um, and a sailing program. And so there are all these coasties wandering the town with us and looking at boats and rigging. Good association, but kind of odd in a California way. Well, if you're ever down that way and you need to get a hold of him, get, give me a call. I've got his contact information. He and I have traded uh, designs on uh, on the self-steering gear that he sells for the Bristol uh -huh. Channel Cutter. Sure. Okay. and uh, right. That's great. Yeah, I'll probably be down there again probably for that course. Okay. Okay. Yeah. He and I, you know, I go down there and, and I, you know, I built my own self-steering gear basically off the design that Larry Party came up with. Yep. Which works. It works wonderfully. Yeah. It works yeah. wonderfully. Pull right up front, a little uh, Bridgeville Channel 28 uh, with that gear on it. You know, put it on. Put it on. Yeah. I have some oh, questions about the design. I wish there that uh, Lyle had done the rigging differently and I have converted a couple of them over the years, particularly the applet intermediate shrouds, which are essentially decorative. Really, uh, uh, makes much more sense to lead them over the lower spreaders. Okay, okay. I'm trying to visualize on my boat. You're talking about the uh, the intermediate shrouds, uh, the one that goes up to basically about to where the staysail is. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Upper, if you have upper spreaders, you mm -hmm. have a yeah. spreader. Yeah, they go up to where the fore staysail Okay. Is uh, and uh, by the way, the jib is a staysail. Mm -hmm. My pedantic obsessions. Um, so the four staysail, the inner one, and then they angled aft at a very shallow angle, and this accomplishes two things: uh, it puts tremendous compression loads on the mast, and it interferes with the travel of the boom, so you're more likely to get accidental jibes. The boom can't go out as fully. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, it does almost nothing to oppose the pull of the four stay, hmm. right? Because the angle is so shallow. Now, the, the, the 
the characteristics of the hull are such, and the, the parties are such great sailors, that they've gotten away with this. They also have a much stiffer mast and a bit better lead than uh, these production boats generally do. Um, but the, the boats will sail, sail much better, much more stable mast shape, and even a, uh, a, a lighter mast with the same stiffness you can build if you leave those shrouds over the lower spreaders athwart the mast and then just add easy-to-use running backs mm, okay, okay. Uh, instead. And by easy-to-use, I mean no block and tackle at the bottom end, which is almost as decorative as athletic intermediates. Instead, I recommend uh, people build a Spectre pendant. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And then splice a nice fat rope tail to the bottom. And then take it through a single deck block to the weather winch, which is empty. Oh, okay, okay. Uh -huh. So then instead of four to one, you have 40 to one. You have no block swinging around hitting you in the head. Um, it overhauls instantly on the lured side. Um, and in any event, if you have the right size mast, you're only using these runners maybe 20 25% of the time, because uh, otherwise they're not needed. You're sealing it basically as a sloop right, or as a right, cutter, yeah. light airs, where you don't want to have the runners set up. So that kind of thing is still available. You know, we can still keep upgrading our boats, uh, keep trying to tweak the design. But if you look at your boat next time, I hope you won't be able to not see how the lower spreaders are doing almost nothing. They're acting as fair leads. Right. They really are. They are. Uh huh. Right. So, but they're not. They're not stabilizing the mast. They're not doing much. So they're being wasted, basically. Uh, so, <laughs> so they do allow you to sheet them a little tighter than if you had a single spreader rig, which is where this happened, by the way. A little, a little how things evolved. The first uh, cutters of this type were single spreader rigs, and there were aft intermediates. There were no upper spreaders. Uh, they were the aft intermediates or runners, and Lyle decided to go with the after intermediates because runners were such a bother to deal with with the block and take right okay and then when they when the when they switched to a much taller leaner rig and added upper spreaders they just kept the, the standing rigging configuration i see okay right? uh -huh. and and it, it made even less sense because now the rigs were taller and the angle was even steeper and oh just wow just yeah, almost got there they almost you know made the jump but it sort of got stuck with the the old style so as good as those boats sail, and they sail very well indeed, Mr. Hess could bend the batten. Um, they're even better with uh, the intermediates led the way, oh, every other boat almost in the world leads, you know, oh. get, some, get some lateral <clears throat> work out of them. <clears throat> you know, Brian, have you, um, have you ever sailed, have you ever traveled over to Turkey and seen some of the wooden boats they make over there? Yes, yes. I, I had the uh, great pleasure and delight of sailing six months in a, in a boat called Sea Cloud, which is a 300-foot-on-deck bark, four-masted bark, uh, out of Hamburg. And uh, we spent the, the summers in the uh, eastern Mediterranean, Greece and Turkey. So saw quite a lot of the, the, uh, the local craft. Yeah, why do you ask? Well, because it's it's one of those places where it's still an active an active art. You know, there's there's oh, artists yeah. like like you and that small community up in Port Townsend. Oh, yes. But there's yes. there's not that many places in America that you uh, you really build production wooden boats anymore. No, including Port Townsend, there's not not production. There's very little new construction going on, except uh, well, occasionally some, uh, especially smaller boats. Although the the local uh, boat building school 
Metro School of Wooden Boat Building, which I recommend, um, does does build some sizable craft, uh, both old style and new style. Likewise, Turkey, um, there are still people who are knocking out really the wonderful swoopy sheared traditional vessels of all sizes, and they built the Millennium Falcon and boats like that. These amazing carbon fiber, um, hyper modern vessels. Yeah, I I wouldn't. Uh... There's a little town um, sort of in the central part of the coast of Turkey called Bosburn. Mm -hmm. And the first time I sailed in there, I'm sailing in this very, very well-protected bay. And it's a small town, so you have to sort of want to go there. At least it was when yeah. I went there. And now it seems to be have become a lot more popular with all the new charter companies. But as I was sailing in, there were five or six boats being built, huge boats, just out ah. in fields, just out in fields. and. As soon as I tied up my boat, I, <laughs> I was down there and I was looking at these boats and walking wow. around and, and trying to communicate with the workers. And, when you and, say huge, what do you mean? Oh, 200 feet. Yeah. You know, 200 feet long, you know, and uh, you know, huge, huge and wooden boats. And, and that's, a, that's their business. That's what they yeah. build. Yeah. And I would – here's what I – let me ask you your opinion on this. So – I'm walking around these boats and I'm trying to communicate and really their whole boatyard is just basically a, a, a bit of a shed over a big bandsaw and, a, and a, a thickness planer and that's really about the only tools that they have. <laughs> Everything else is just, um, you know, handwork, you know, and they build these big ribs and I've got some pictures of them and it's, it's just fascinating to me. But what bothered me was when they put the planking on uh, they they use galvanized nails, and I'm thinking, yeah. aren't galvanized nails just going to fall apart after about uh, you know five years? Aren't they just going to have to re-plank them or re re you know reattach the planks to the? Oh yeah. Okay. Well, gosh, a couple of things here. Um, let's see. One, uh, I'm not I'm sure I'll be able to track all of the things you just sort of these flags waving in the air right now. Uh, one is that there are ways to um, make galvanized nails last longer it all depends on the original galvanizing quality and how you um, seal them away from water and of course the climate you sail them in um, you know, how your maintenance schedule is and so that they can last a good many years there are some boats here that you know 40 50 years old in a much milder climate uh, that the galvanized nails finally failed and had to be had to be fastened um, there is not a super fun site in the country, I think, that I was told once, that does not involve at least some galvanizing facilities. It's an incredibly toxic uh, <laughs> part of our uh, early infrastructure, you know, industrial infrastructure. It's not something I recommend terribly anymore be because of that. Um, but it can be done. It can be done successfully and, and relatively uh, long-lived and very cost-effective. Uh, and then... But it's still kind of resource intensive and you know, pollution intensive, as are big wooden hulls of traditional uh, construction. We're talking about big trees mm -hmm. being cut down. Right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, in fairness, um, this is a much better use for that particularly exquisite, huge biomass than I think IKEA. You know, these are things that are doing much more important things for the world, for humans in the world anyway, uh, much better claim to being works of art, um, frequently much more durable <laughs> than, you know, than kitchen furniture. Um, 
and uh, just overall just a better use of that material. Um, but having said that, I don't think it's something that's uh, ultimately sustainable anymore. I'm more and more inclined to see uh, uh, preserving older boats because they're so astonishingly beautiful and not wasting that material that might be in like a Martha's case over a hundred years old. Some of it is still original, right? So we don't need to build a whole new Martha. We can just incrementally use selected minimal amounts of this incredible material and keep this amazing boat going. And just give you a, a better idea of what that might mean. Uh, there's a annual regatta here, um, a winter regatta up in the San Juan Islands. And it is the most preposterone fueled um, event imaginable. It's at least just manly men, and it is mostly men, um, just up there, just 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 freezing on the weather rail, you know, this, this <laughs> human ballast as they're bashing around the uh, around the county race. I think it's in January. It's just a really stupid time to go sailing. It's just really, really awful, right? So they're up there on these multi-million dollar, literally, uh, carbon fiber rockets, uh, freezing on the rail, and along comes this hundred plus year old schooner, which uh, has won the race at least once, uh, twice I think, and, and always placed high, even with a less and less generous rating, um, and and won boat for boat, not just for racing, but actually physically beating all but the biggest, fastest rockets, right? Um, and the crew of Martha is sitting in the cockpit drinking tea <laughs> and passing these guys, right? And they have spent less on that boat in a in a hundred years, including the original cost of construction, than probably, you know, the sails on one of those boats, right? <laughs> That's right. It is the most cost effective work of art that that works still. It is beating these go fast, you know, hyper computer designed rockets and they're and is doing it with comfort for the inhabitants there's a metaphor there somewhere about you know how we conduct our modern civilization you know so um i think that it is uh, possible to make better use of material is what it comes around to in, in turkey and anywhere else i'm not saying that carbon fiber is that necessarily that material although i think it shows promise um conceivably uh, certainly uh, you can use uh, modern materials to preserve wood better you can use epoxy, for instance, or um, what the parties prefer. I always forget the name of that blue. Um, 5200? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's an earlier form of, of uh, a blue. Um, anyway. Oh, resourcinal blue. Resourcinal, yes. Yeah. When it's which, done you right, which you can't buy anymore. That I well, it, yeah, it's rather difficult. But uh, anyway, you can, you can use that epoxy not just to fasten the boat together, but to preserve the wood. You put you know, just a little uh, brushing of epoxy in a screw hole, and you not only improve the pullout strength by at least 50%, as I recall, but you also protect the adjacent fibers from water intrusion and thus rot, hmm. right? Okay, uh -huh. So I'm all for these, just a, it's like a little bit of an upgrade, a minimal input technologically, um, uh, not too intrusive, to make better use of materials. And that also goes for rigging. So uh, uh, much that I love galvanized rigging, I still do that uh, occasionally you know, on traditional vessels. Uh, I'm much fonder these days of spectra standing rigging, uh, high modulus uh, uh, materials, especially spectra or, mm. or Dyneema, as it's sometimes called. Uh, Coligo uh, sells one brand, uh, which is very good. And my favorite, though, is from New England Ropes. It's called um, 
HSR, heat set rope. Um, there's something that uh, far stronger than steel per pound, so you can make your rig lighter. Uh, requires less uh, tuning stress, and therefore it's kinder to all kinds of holes, especially a wooden one. Um, never fatigues, right? Unlike steel, won't get brittle over time. Mm -hmm. uh, and as long as you, if you can keep sunlight off of it, it'll last. I think just about literally forever. Hmm, and, okay. and if you scale it to the right uh, dimensions, you won't get bothered by creep. You know, sixteenth of an inch a year kind of you know growth in the length of the material. Um, we just recently uh, rigged a, a gap rigged cutter. As I recall, we took about three hundred pounds out of the rig of this boat going to Spectre. With you can imagine the the, the tremendous differences in vessel behavior, getting rid of that ridiculous weight of law. Wow. So now how do you, I mean, a boat's in the sun all the time. So do you have a sacrificial cover over the, uh, uh, a, over the line? There's, there's three basic ways to deal with that. One is just don't cover it. Um, you get an initial oxidization and up to a 20% loss of, of strength in the first year, in the tropics at least. Mm -hmm. And that gradually drops off to like 2% a year. You know? Okay. And since and since if it's the right um, size rope, it's like six times stronger than the wire it replaced, that you can afford quite a bit of, of, of follow-up. That's one approach. Um, and it's it's more attractive up, up where the UV isn't so intense, like where I live. It'll, it'll last, basically it'll last about as long as stainless in any environment uh, until UV finally gets to it. That's one approach. Another is you can buy it with a braided cover. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. There are some braided covers. I think Practical Sailor has some data on this. Remind me to get back to Practical Sailor here in a minute. But, um, that even uh, a braided cover, a double braid, uh, allows sunlight through the cover to some extent, and therefore it oxidizes the core, which if it's high modulus rope, then you've lost the, your strength. So it really just argues for a much better, tighter cover, which, again, you can get. You can get a double braided version of this Spectra Dyneema rope. And that works well for cruising boats. There's a guy named Joe Henderson down in um, Australia who uh, has been doing this for years now. He does great work. You can look him up. What we did on this cutter was old school. We took this high modulus, the G whiz, kind of right out of the labs kind of material, relatively speaking, and we served it full length with twine, just like you would do for a splice in, just like a splice in. That's, yeah, that's a lot of serving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Well, you got to get set up to do that. You know, uh, uh, you can cover 20, 30 feet an hour. So for so, my, so for my listeners that may not know what serving is, go ahead yeah. and explain that to them. All right. So you, uh, if it were galvanized, you would put a layer of tar on it or something like that, an antioxidant on the surface of the wire. Uh, when I got really just physically sick of putting my hands in tar all day, I ended up using anhydrous lanolin, something to keep the corrosion barrier on the wire. And then you wrap it with tape called parceling, uh, traditionally, uh, as a waterproofing layer. And then you put a layer of this surface over it, this uh, twine. It used to be hemp. We used nylon or dacron, you know, synthetic hemp. And you use a tool called a serving mallet or serving board to, it's a tensioning, a rotating tensioning device. And the, the twine feeds off a spool as you rotate the, the mallet or board around the wire, and it just lays down tight tangent turns. Nice alliteration there. And you just wrap it, this long 
wrapping of, of twine the whole length of it. Uh, like I say, if you have set up to do it right, you can fly that mallet just by oscillating the wire or rotating the wire. It's easy to cover 20, 30 feet an hour, even with the parceling. Um, it works extremely well on galvanized wire. I've lifted parceling in service off of a roughly 100-year-old iron wire, and the galvanizing wasn't even whitened under it. It was still shiny after all that time. Mm. You do it right, right? You got to keep all the sunlight and all the water out every, at every point, every juncture, especially at the splices, it's vulnerable, right? Otherwise, it doesn't matter if you served it so thoroughly. So in this boat, we did that with Spectra on uh, all the shrouds. So it's only the stays that are un, unserved because you'll have tanks running up and down them. So that would probably chafe the service off. And we'll make hanks out of Spectra, uh, which is a form of soft shackle, which is why I wanted to get back around to practical sailors. So for your listeners, not just consider please standing rigging out of Spectra slash Dyneema. Uh, when you do that, there is a bit of a learning curve to it, like any new material. And I recommend you go to Caligo Marine's uh, website. You have a lot of interesting FAQs and details on how to measure and splice. And they have just a great tech support. John Franta, uh, tremendous tech support. Whether you use his rope or New England's, the results are going to be about the same. Um, and then uh, it, it, it springs up the idea that this is a new material. It's been around long enough now that people have been playing with it. And that includes this odd little thing called a soft shackle which is basically a, a button and Beckett loop that you can attach and detach like a shackle. <coughs> you can use it in a lot of applications. You use a steel shackle. Only again, it's something that's fabulously strong relative to its weight that you can build yourself with your bare hands. Um, so the question is, how strong are they? And the version that's out now is available in a lot of chandleries it's pretty reliable, depending on whose test results you believe, somewhere between 120% and 150% of the rope strength of the rope they're made from. So if you had a quarter-inch rope, you could build a shackle with like a 10, 11,000-pound break just with a spike. Just tie this funny little old-school old knot, a lanyard knot, and just um, make your own shackle. Hmm. And uh, you can look it up. Um, and if you come to our site, uh, actually, I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but uh, theoretically, because of this construction, uh, if, if it was 100% efficient how you made it, you should be able to get 400% of rope strength. Should you be able to get four times the breaking strength of that rope if there wasn't a weak spot? Well, there is a weak spot. It's where the lanyard knot is made. Um, this rope does not like knots. It doesn't respond well to stress risers like that tight radiuses that you find in knots. You tie a bowline with this, and it crawls out at about 10% of the of the breaking strength of the rope. If you can keep it from crawling, it'll still break at about 30 or 40% of the breaking strength of the rope. It does not like knots, right? Mm -hmm. So these shackles will always break right adjacent to that, that lanyard knot. It's still a pretty impressive strength when it does that, but they'll break there. Uh, and it's harder to get good strength numbers the bigger the rope you use. So how do we make them stronger out of smaller rope and get the kind of performance we really need? You're going to have to put splices in then, right? Well, basically you do. Uh, instead of a lanyard knot where the ends go in, do a little complication, and then keep going in the same direction, like a Matthew Walker knot that your listeners might know about, 
you'll make a button where the ends go in, make a little complication and come back out the way they came. And then you just tuck the ends like three or four inches back into the standing parts. So you've got two ends with the basic form of this shackle and you tuck it back and it's a, well, depending on the diameter, it's at least twice as strong as the original incredibly strong shackle. So now we're talking approaching 300% efficiencies um, with a slightly more complicated knot. And this is now how I attach jib sheets to clues. Oh, now you, okay, okay. Because you get, you're attaching with a soft shackle, um, well, you know, if it's, if it's traveling fast enough, it'll still kill you and hit you in the head. Right. But it has to be traveling a lot faster than a steel shackle would to accomplish that job. Um, so because you can shackle your uh, your sheets safely to your clue with a device that cannot flog open, right? uh, these just don't, small boat sailors now use them, racing boats, um, you can now splice <clears throat> the sheets. <clears throat> this means you can use smaller, lighter sheets because a splice is much more efficient than a bowling. Mm -hmm. And the splice is smoother than a bowling, so it doesn't hang up when you tack. And you can now play with the whole rest of that running rigging system because of what this new tool has provided. The other place that we've been using them a lot is uh, rope to chain connections. You've got nylon rope, for instance, at the moment that's what we've got, mm -hmm. going to high strength chain. You really, it's very, very hard to get an efficient connection between this very fat rope and this very skinny chain. But if you can use one of these improved soft shackles to connect those two devices, you have a, a shackle that is stronger and more chafe resistant than the nylon and quite a lot more strong than the chain as well and it's detachable so you can put in different lengths combination of rope and chain as you wish rather than splicing it through it right mm -hmm. uh, it's a wonderful thing uh it was recently field tested in an interesting way this boat this guy came in he's from alaska he sails the boat a lot he anchors a lot in some significant weather and he was very skeptical about this you know this new thing made from it. It's basically this plastic with a, it's like a relative of a grocery bag with a postgraduate degree. It's just, you know, it's just it's plastic. But he, I talked him into it. I showed him the destruction test numbers we'd, we've done. And he said, well, okay. And then he went away and is kind of, I don't know. And I got this email several weeks later. I thought, okay, what's going to be here? And he sent these pictures. There's a a bay, it's either Auk Bay or Sauk Bay in Alaska, a famous, uh, it's good shelter, but it's a famous ground for snagging anchors. They're just mm -hmm. the topography just, just eats people's anchors. So the bottom of the bay is just littered with anchors. You know, just people just, just cut away and walk away, right? sail away. So sure enough, he gets up in the morning and he cannot get his anchor back up. And he tries and tries and he, he's on his windstream. It's just not working. And I get, what am I going to do? I don't want it to lose this anchor and this fish boat comes in and he says uh can i help and the guys they talk a while and so he hands him his road the rope part of the road and the big big fish boat puts it around his big power winch and uh cranks away and then stalls that winch out even on this much bigger boat but he's got two winches so he takes it around the first winch and he takes it around the second winch and he fires them both up and up comes the anchor with five other anchors attached. Oh, <laughs> right? <laughs> so now he's rich in anchors, and that shackle, you know, proved itself in the field. It's one thing to have lab tests, right, which are very gratifying at all. Um, and I still have this ongoing uh, series. I just mailed some yesterday for uh, some more prototypes that I think will break the 300% barrier. Um, 
It's how to get out in the real world and have things, you know, hold together in a way that appeals to our lizard brain. Um, and then just while I'm thinking of it, uh, let's segue back to a practical sailor. Um, um, today, actually, when I finish this interview, I'm going to uh, make up some um, destruction test samples using uh, Hain high mod terminals, stay locks, and Norse persons, as we call them in Port Townsend, Norseman terminals. Mm -hmm. Several examples of each in a couple of different wire diameters. So these are the type of uh, wire uh, wire end splices that people can put on themselves. In. Yes, exactly. Right. And I have been doing so for years. And I want to preface this, as I will be prefacing the article, that strength is you know ultimate efficiency, like how much the terminal weakens the wire, if you will, mm -hmm. is probably the least important aspect of these terminals. That corrosion resistance... You know, the quality of the metallurgy, um, uh, the, the fatigue resistance of it is, uh, uh, all those are more important in terms of actually preventing things from breaking on a sailboat. Having said that, I was talking with a rigger uh, recently who, who sold uh, Norseman Terminals and um, about this whole issue. And he said, oh, it doesn't matter. Because uh, uh, I, I mentioned I yet to see a... Um, instruction test for Norseman terminals of over 80% efficiency that if I can believe those numbers, and I'm not sure I can yet, um, that those tests indicated that those terminals weaken the wire by 20% roughly, which is really scary. Um, and he said, it doesn't matter because they never get loaded that high, which is true. If you design it the correct size and you don't sail it ridiculously, even if you do steal it ridiculously, it should be just about impossible to approach 80% of the wire strength on a given wire. Then I said, well, would it be okay then if I took a hacksaw down to this boat you're working on and cut through three or four of those wires, you know, the one by 19 wires? Because that's about 20% of the of the strength of the wire. Right. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, of course not. And I said, because. <laughs> so I didn't make any friends that day. Um, but the point is there that the more efficient the terminal, the more it approaches not weakening the wire at all, the bigger the safety factor you can have, the deeper the insurance policy you can have for a given wire size. You don't have to go up a size of wire to compensate for that weakening effect. You'll have more reserve strength uh, to oppose the corrosion and fatigue that you might that you will inevitably get, right? Mm -hmm. You'll be, be staying further from the possibility of a dismassing at any given time. So the grail in yacht rigging, in, in all forms of rigging, industrial theater, and in all forms of rigging, the rail for wire termination is 100% efficiency. We've got it with, well, poured sockets. The next time you ride an elevator, I don't know if you ride elevators, but next time you do, you're probably riding on a poured socket terminal. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's where they basically have this fitting in that's a socket. You spread out the wire inside the socket, yep. and you pour molten zinc, as I recall, into yep. it. Is that right? pour molten metal in, but nowadays they use a two-part glue. Not epoxy, but a, a two-part glue. That's okay, important. okay. But same principle. Yeah, spread them out, fill it with this stuff. It sets up. It can't pull out. 100% efficient, reliably. All right, thanks for listening. Before I leave, I just want to give you a heads up of what is coming up. I have one more episode with Brian Toss. Hopefully, I'll get that released next week. Also, I have an interview coming up with Jack Andrews and his wife, Julie. They talk about how they're planning to take off and go sailing for a year, the decisions they made, what they plan on doing. So that'll be coming up. And then I've got one more interview scheduled 
for next week with an individual by the name of Jackson Myers. Jackson has developed an app for mobile devices. It's a barometer. It's a cool barometer, and I've got it on my phone. It's free. I downloaded it. But I reached out to him, and I said, Jackson, great app, like it, but let me tell you what I'd like to find. I'd like to find an app that when the barometric pressure changes over a relatively short period of time, it gives me an alarm. And I'll tell you where this idea came from. Of course, all my ideas I steal from somebody else. I was at an anchorage in Turkey, and just my wife and I, and there was one other boat, a Swiss boat, in this little anchorage. And I was off on shore and wandering around. And, and while I was on shore, a big big wind came up very quickly. Suddenly, very quickly, a wind came up. I went back to the boat and took the dinghy back out to the boat. And our anchor held just fine, so it was not a big deal. But my wife mentioned that she said about 10 minutes before this big wind hit, the single-handed sailor that was on the other boat was a fairly large boat. And he was... Uh, it was a beautiful, well-maintained boat, probably 40 feet long. He jumped up on deck and went around and tied down everything, got everything shipshape, and then suddenly the wind hit. So a little later that evening, we rode the dinghy over, and I said, well, my wife said that before that wind hit that you were coming up on board and getting ready for it. And he said, yes, I've got this barometer. It's a Swiss barometer. It's a bariograph, actually. It, it records a full year of barometric pressure changes. And if, if the weather, if the barometric pressure changes quickly over a short period of time, it so- sounds an alarm. And I said, well, that's pretty cool. And he took me down and showed it to me. And, and I went and looked at it. And I've never bought one. But now with iPhones, that can be built into an iPhone. So Jackson... Jackson Myers has taken my idea, and he's got an app that he's developed now with that feature built into it. And I'm going to do at least a partial podcast talking to him about his app, how it works, and uh, and so forth. Also, last podcast, I mentioned that uh, (laughs) the sailing forum uh, did not respond. I meant to say the cruising forum, the cruisers forum, would not respond to my my email entreaties to talk to somebody there so one of my listeners wrote me a letter saying hey uh who who exactly were you talking about and i said i'm sorry i I made a mistake i did i meant to say the cruisers forum would not respond to my emails he said well i've been a member of the cruisers it's called the cruisers and sailing forum since 2011 let me see what i can do so he wrote somebody and said uh can can franz interview somebody here and they responded to him with what looked like a basic uh, pre-printed email. It says, we can be reached via the Contact Us link at the bottom of every forum page. You do not have to be a member to, or logged on to contact us. Kind regards, Dirk, the social knowledge support team. So I'll send an email to them, and we'll see if a, an actual human being chooses to respond. So thanks, Ron. I appreciate you looking out for me there. All right. Thanks for listening. Listen next week when we should have the third in the series of podcasts with Brian Toss finished up. Thanks a lot. If you have any comments, questions, use the contact form at the website or email me directly, franz at medsailor.com. Go sailing. Joe, do you have something to tell me? 
No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joe. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. You made me very proud. I was just thinking where we might be 10 years from now, you know? <laughs> The introduction and exit quotes for this podcast were from the movie Risky Business, released in 1983 and written by Paul Brickman. The dialogue, which was used in order, were played by Curtis Armstrong, who in the movie played the character Miles Dalby, Nicholas Pryor, who in the movie played Joel's father, Mr. Goodson, and Tom Cruise, who was the main character who played the character of Joel Goodson.